As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to The Audible. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined as always by Bruce Feldman. But Bruce, this is easily the closest together we've ever been while recording one of these podcasts. Yes, Stu. I didn't know when you said, let's go do this in your hotel room, you were going to put me on the love seat. Uh, it's a little weird, but uh, we're we, doing well, this for that, you. Was, that was one of those comments that if without context... I know, it probably made we, Rob Stone drive off, drive off the <laughs> beach cruiser. So, you know what? Look, we're doing this for you, the listener. We had to, we had to scramble because both of us are flying out of... Out of uh, Alabama tomorrow, uh, so we wouldn't have time to do this when Nick Saban and a few others and Brett Bielema are going to have spoken. So we want yeah. to work it in now. So this is our podcast from SEC Media Days. It's the end of day two here in Hoover, Alabama. And like you said, now by the time we get this out and people listen to it, Saban and Bielema will have made all kinds of headlines. But um, the first two days have been a little underwhelming, to say the least. Uh I don't feel like there's been a lot of big headlines from here. And I'm curious, because people always ask me this, so now I'm going to ask you this. 1,500 media members here, just a complete circus, as everybody's always heard or seen. What do you get out of an event like SEC Media Days? You know, the biggest thing I get is FaceTime with, with, other, with coaches as well as some with the players, although it's hard to really get to, if you don't know somebody before, it's hard to really get to know them in the context of, of this setting where there's so much media around and you just everybody's being kind of shepherded from one one venue to the next. Uh, I also think it's really beneficial to kind of connect, reconnect with a lot of the sports information directors because we rely on them a lot. Uh, we call, you know, we usually call them or email them a bunch of times over the course of the year. And quite honestly, you know, we travel a little bit in the spring and in the in the you know training camp time, but I you know I don't think we travel quite as much probably. And you can't get to everywhere, and this is one stop shopping. I think. Yeah, there's no question that the most valuable way to get to know a coach and get to know a program is to go to their campus, and in particular during the spring when things are a little bit more relaxed. You know, here FaceTime consists of. Um, you know, a quick shake of the hand, introduce yourself or reintroduce yourself to uh, Jim McElwain, or we spoke with Trevor Knight, uh, you spoke with Miles Garrett today. But, you know, in the course of two hours, they probably have 200 different people. Let me, let me throw <laughs> interact something with them. Let me throw something at you. You're not probably expecting this. 
Who were the three, and this kind of reminds me, we were both talking about this. We saw a Twitter link about a story that said uh, Kirby Smart aces press conferences or something. And, you know, it got me thinking, you know, how much these press conferences really don't matter, quite honestly. You know, it's like you could be great. Robbie Caldwell was great at his media day and and won won over a lot of folks. Um, Well, occasionally I'll see somebody tweet, you can tell such and such. You can tell Kevin someone's really confident about his team this year. Well, they're all confident about yeah, their I, you know, or at I'm least gonna, they're, they're going to put that out there. I'm going to walk that back a little bit. I think Derek Mason, because you know, I was here the last couple of years in his first two years, I thought Derek Mason sounded a lot more like the guy I remember interviewing a lot at Stanford uh, than he did in the first two years where I think he just was feeling his way along. I don't know if it's because he felt that much more confident in the team he has. It probably has something to do with that. But from your experiences for 15 years... What are your most memorable things you've seen or heard? Maybe not quotes, but you know, people who've who've been at media days where you're going like, "Well, that was kind of impressive," or "That was kind of memorable." Well, the most memorable SEC media day moment by far was the year that Phil Fulmer didn't come because he was worried because there were lawyers <laughs> threatening to subpoena him. The most SEC he crossed into the <laughs> border of Alabama, so that he did his. He did his appearance by speakerphone, and I just remember all these TV cameras going up and filming the speakerphone. Uh, you know, you see, you, there's plenty of good um, speakers over the years. Not one in particular necessarily stands out, but to your point, you know, it's a very intimidating. I have to imagine a very intimidating situation to go through the first time, and it's not a surprise that somebody like Derek Mason would get more comfortable with time. I remember being at Big Ten Media Days when Pat Fitzgerald, who was 31 at the time and had just taken the Northwestern job after Randy Walker passed away, you know, he was definitely seemed in over his head. Which now, is interesting because he's fantastic. Now he's, yeah, he is, but, you know, everybody's got to learn it on the fly. And we talk about this often that the skills that get these guys, you know, the, the skills that Derek Mason showed in, you know, scheming a defense that could shut down Marcus Mariota. Uh, and that high-powered Oregon offense is not remotely the same skill set as stand in front of a room of a thousand people and be an ambassador for your program and you know give out a message that the, the recruits that might be watching at home on ESPN will will get and that the, the media will you know portray your program in the way you are hoping. Um, and look, these guys have gotten some difficult questions this week, some of whom have managed them better than others. I think you and I both agree that the week got off to a bit of an underwhelming start with Greg Sankey, the SEC commissioner. Mike Sly used to come to this thing every year, and, you know, I mean, you could tell he spends a long time preparing his speech and going over and over again, and he always had certain points he wanted to make, not just about the SEC, but, you know, he saw himself, uh, he's often used this phrase as as an ambassador for the sport because it's such a powerful role he's in. And so he would use it accordingly. Greg Sankey, I don't know what was going on there. You know, it started out in a, in a very uh, thoughtful way about, you know, putting sports to the side and talking about uh, the event, unfortunate events in the country over the past week, then saluting Pat Summit, mm-hmm. then just a long, long filibuster almost about all the accomplishments of the student-athletes and whatnot, kind of to be expected. Well, I'll let you take it from there because you wrote about this. Yeah, then it gets a little sideways. Look, you know, I think when you say when you were talking about Mike Slive, you know, the bar is really high if you're following Mike Slive. I mean, my my, you know, reference point for him was I always felt like he was your buddy's dad 
who you felt like he just kind of was warm and personable. Whereas a lot of the other guys in, in that role, either power or five commissioners, feel like the principal. Or they feel like somebody, you know, I was a C student. I didn't necessarily want to deal with those guys that much. And that's the way it kind of felt where Sly was very different. I'm not saying Greg Sankey is more like those other guys than he's like Sly, but I think maybe like Derek Mason, he is still feeling his way around how what he wants to put out there. He's doing it in a different social media age than some of these other guys had to break in on. But I thought it was a fairly tone deaf kind of a uh, couple of remarks he made, especially with kind of the elephant in the room was coming today, a day after Sankey's opening remarks, which were going to be. Mississippi State and Dan Mullen talking about taking Jeffrey Simmons. And it's a story you and I had talked about on our podcast, you know, a month or so ago when that news broke. But what was significant was that happened at the SEC uh, conference meetings. Mississippi State waited, I would argue now, purposefully till Dan Mullen left before they broke the news. So Dan Mullen had to face it. Well, Dan Mullen had to face it here, and he did not do well at all. Uh, his answers, especially to one that didn't happen in the big room, a big main room, there's, you know, whatever, 600 people. It happened in a smaller room, uh, the Internet, you know, media room, where he was asked by Kyle Tucker from SEC country, you know, how would you feel if it was, some, you know, your daughter or your wife who was on the ground being pummeled by Jeffrey Simmons in that case? And his answer was just kind of, it was it was all over the place, and yet it was very it, it awkward. It was, I don't think my family would ever be in that situation. Yeah, which is such an odd, like, it, it takes you into a weird place of what's he trying to say. And the one thing I, I came away thinking is it probably shows you why Mississippi State made a point of not having him answer that. They put it off as long as possible. Yet, how do you not, why would you come here and not expect to get a question like that or not be prepared to answer it? And I think coming back to the original point with Greg Sankey, yeah, I think that he said, you know, we've been a leader on this issue of addressing it. And they have. They deserve credit for, I think, what was a good move by saying, look, we're not going to take transfers who have this issue. But when it comes down to what, what's the difference, why will you take, you know, incoming recruits? You know, Jeffrey Simmons turns 19 later this month. He's not, it's not like this happened when he was 13 years old. And I don't think he addressed it well. I think they need to get a stronger position on this. And I also think the way they talk about it as coaches, I think, still needs some work. I mean, you know, these coaches all will say, this is a teachable moment. Some problem happens, you know, at some other school. We use it as a teachable moment to educate our players. I think it, I think Dan Mullen's answer, that his response is probably something, you know, other ADs will go, hey, you know, this comes up. This is not the route to go. Well, Dan Mullen did come prepared to answer most of those questions, and he answered them, you know, in a very programmed, stick-to-the-point. Uh, I mean, at one point he said that the decision to, uh, you know, somebody asked about the decision to you know, suspend him a game. He tried to, like, wash his hands of it. Like, oh, that was, that was completely above me. You know, I didn't really do you not believe to do that? that decision. Of course not. He's the football coach. If he wanted to suspend him for six games, he could. If he wanted to suspend him for a year, he could. Uh, I do believe that the university, at the university level, they had to make a decision to admit him. But ultimately, uh, hey, it's Dan Mullen. He's a player. He's a team. Um, I want to get back to Greg Sankey because, I, you know, the, the, these commissioner jobs don't change that often. And this is a particularly significant one. 
and I've known Greg for a while. I knew him when he was still, you know, under Slive. And I've always enjoyed my conversations with him. But it's interesting. You're starting to see his identity as a commissioner come forward. And the best way I can describe it is it's a little bit quaint. Greg has always been heavily involved in the NCAA, in leadership positions, the bureaucracy, if you will. In fact, he is still the chair of the Committee on Infractions, which some of us have talked about as being a little bit odd now that he's a commissioner of a conference. Is it odd or does it feel like a conflict of interest? Both. Uh, You know, not that anybody's too worried about Georgia Southern in the grand scheme of things, but he heard their case recently. Georgia Southern beat Florida a couple years ago. They, They play SEC teams regularly. Seems odd to me that he would be rendering a verdict on them. Do you feel like, as a national media member, as any media member, do you feel like um, it's a responsibility to bring up and say, "Hey, I think you should call for"? And I'm not trying to make you sound overly self-important, but do you think it's our responsibility as media members to say he should recuse himself because it's a bad look? I'd have to. I don't know that I'm ready to comment on that yet because I have to go look at. I don't know if his term is expiring or you know that kind of thing, but. You know, is he hearing the North Carolina case? I mean, that's a that's a you know involving a huge program. Um, I don't know. I don't know yet. I do know this. He is what he is positioning himself as is the the, the protector of the student athlete. He, you know, time demands. He was, he was tweeting pictures over the weekend of his meetings with the you know student athlete reps from around the conference. And look, this is all very noble. I'm not trying to you know downplay it, but. He's the commissioner of the the most passionate football conference in the country. At the end of the day, people are looking to him about football issues. And he barely got into it at all. In fact, he flat out came out and said, I'm going to leave the officiating stuff to Steve Shaw, the coordinator of officiating. Um, You know, anything else, maybe you can ask me about it later. I'm not going to talk about those policies. And so my point is with the Jeffrey Simmons thing, he basically spent 10, 15 minutes touting all these various athletes' accomplishments. Which I think are good things because yeah. he used the platform. He's on TV. He's on SEC Network. So I, I, don't, I don't think that's... But, that's then when some, but then when they brought up the Jeffrey Simmons situation, he kind of bristled at it as almost like, you know, come on, guys. Don't focus on this one bad situation. Look at all the good things we're doing. And, and the reason that comes off a bit hypocritical is he has... has you know, they had that rule that went into place last year about transfers, not taking in transfers who've been kicked off their previous team for serious crimes. And he flat out said, you know, we are positioning ourselves as a leader in this. We, other conferences are copying us in this. But when it's an incoming freshman, oh, you know, that's different. Uh, he's, he's not of college age yet. That's up to the schools. It was kind of a cop-out. And he used that same line that Scott Strickland used in Destin, don't judge a guy's character off 10 seconds of video. I get that. I, I don't know that it is fair. We talked about it at the time that a 18 year or 19 year old kid's whole life would be um, judged upon a 10 second video, as gruesome as it was. But you have to look at context. This is in the wake of Baylor. This is in the wake of just increased heightened awareness about violence toward women. And what I message think it, are you trying to? What matches are you trying to send? Not you per se, but are you trying to send to other? You know recruitable athletes but also people take their cues from from leaders of that level i mean the new motto of the sec is it it means more or is it just means more or is it means more it just means just means more um you know i think they want to hold want to be held it just means more when you're a five-star recruit (laughs) then you're a lot harder to cut that is the use what message are they they're saying if you're a five-star recruit 
especially at a place like Mississippi State that doesn't get a lot of five-star recruits, you're going to get more of a pass than if you're a two-star recruit. I don't think there's any question about Do that. You, would you feel differently if, you know, I asked this question on Monday to Gus Malzahn. They had four players get in trouble, and he had said, no, they're not going to sit out the opener. Well, the opener's against Clemson, who's really, really good. So I asked him, how much, if at all, do you factor in the caliber of the opponent when you determine if somebody's getting suspended? And he danced all over the place. He did not answer that at all. Would you feel differently about this a little bit if people, maybe not Greg Sankey, but coaches were a little more blunt in saying, like what Jimmy Johnson said, whatever it was, 25 years ago, that, yeah, if it's my star player, I'm going to treat him a little differently than, I mean, Bobby Bowden went that route, right? Right. It would almost be better if they were just honest about it and came out and said that. You think it would be? You think you think it would make a difference, or, pe- or people like us, uh, people the media us would, would be, use it against them? Too. Uh, I'm sure, sure we would use it against them, but it, it would at least be believable. Some of the stuff we're hearing is not so believable. But the recurring theme here has been: we've got you know, let's focus on the good things. Don't bother us with these pesky questions about player misconduct or. You know, Hugh Freeze is going to be here on Thursday. Right, Thursday, yeah. Unfortunately, both of us will be gone, but you can imagine what that's going to be like. Yeah, look, I mean, and I think he's tried some preemptive, you know, methods to try to tamp it down. He had, you know, he invited ESPN to come there and spend a day with him and all these other things. And, but that's in the, that's right now in the crosshairs. And that's a big story. It's an elite team that is, you know, has beaten Alabama back to back years. And it's it's not like this is happening at a mid-level, mid-major program. And I think that, you know, Greg Sankey used that line again about, you know, at this point we have nobody on probation or whatever. Yeah, he made a big point in bragging about that, even though we know Ole Miss will be soon. Missouri basketball is under investigation. And Alabama fired Bo Davis for yeah. recruiting violations. So the whole thing just felt a little disingenuous, to be honest, you know. You've got some problems. I'm not saying it's like the, the old Southwest yeah. Conference. You've got some problems. Maybe admit them and confront them rather than come up with a catchy slogan that's supposed to uh, make us all forget about it. Uh, in terms of football, uh, I want to start with Texas A&M. They were the team we heard from most recently. You have a man crush on, on Trevor Knight, don't you? Well, I don't have a man crush on <laughs> Trevor Knight, but I do think it's a fascinating story. Uh, when you think about back to last December... And all the chaos when uh, Kyler Murray and Kyle Allen transferred within the span of a couple weeks. What is what is going on at AM? The sky is falling. It's pure chaos there. Um, even um, uh, Allen, you know, did an interview once he got to Houston that basically said, "Oh, it's a the culture there is a mess." So it's clear in Kevin Sumlin's comments to us today that he looks at Trevor Knight not just as you know we needed a quarterback. Not only do we go get a quarterback, we go get a guy who's a model citizen, who's experienced, who's started in big games. Who's a leader. I mean, remember, he was a team captain at Oklahoma last year when he wasn't even the starting quarterback. I mean, that says something. He may have set a record. This is his third conference media day he's attended, and they send the guys who they feel are the best representatives of the program. Uh, You know, they named him the starter after 15 spring practices. So it's clear they're counting on him. Not just to you know literally fill that position on the field, but to give them what they've been lacking, uh, arguably since he's been there. Because let's face it, Johnny Manziel was not exactly a picture of maturity. No, he was so not a leader. they have not had a guy in that position who a team would logically rally around. And 
he's starting to feel the heat a little bit. A couple of disappointing seasons. He's making $5 million a year. Um, haven't been able to follow up on the success of that first season. And they got a lot of pieces. I wonder if this, you know, when we were talking to him this afternoon, it dawned on me, I wonder if this feels a little like his first year. Because when he came in here the first time, I don't know if you were at SEC Media Days that year, but it was a lot of people going, like, do you really know what you're getting into? And there was a lot of, like, like almost looking down at this is this is the SEC. They had just moved in there, and like, they were in over their heads. It feels a little bit like that now, where people just are off the Aggies bandwagon because they've had back-to-back years where they've started out pretty well, and then all of a sudden the bottom is kind of, I don't say the bottom has fallen out, but they've had some ugly losses and just struggled to beat good teams. Whereas, you know, his first year, and they went to went to Tuscaloosa and beat the team that ended up winning the national title. Well, I think that what it is, you know, when they came here for the first time, it was, you know, they were, they were going to get pummeled in the mm-hmm. SEC. They're not ready. There was that sentiment. They seemingly proved that wrong the first year, but as time has gone on, it's been actually Johnny Manziel is the one that, that may have done that. And now they are returning to earth. They are getting pummeled by Alabama the last couple of years. I don't know that people are rooting for that, but they're saying, oh, see, you know, they weren't ready. They're, they're, they're not SEC up to, up to SEC caliber. Now, you know, I, I jumped on that bandwagon too Last too year, much last, last year. year, so I'm a little. I'm afraid to be burned, but I'm there's a, a lot to like there I'm with Miles that. Garrett and those defensive linemen and those receivers, and now Trevor Knight, who, I mean, he had his ups and downs at Oklahoma, but he has ability. Some of those ups are good pretty fit. good. He's a good fit for the system. I think Noel Mazzoni makes it relatively easy. You know, you don't have to be Aaron Rodgers as a you know as a passer to get the ball out. Like you said, they have a, they do have really good receivers. I mean, people Christian Kirk is is as good a receiver as there is in the country. Uh, I think the area where they're really going to be better, two areas. One, I think their secondary for the first time in a long time, including since someone has been there, is is a big-time secondary. They're really good, in the, especially at safety, where they used to be really bad at safety. The other area is his best move, I think, this offseason was bringing Jim Turner on as the offensive line coach. He was with Mike Sherman. He was really one of the guys who recruited all those future first-round picks. The offensive line last year was their biggest mess. It was a bad, It was just a real struggle there. Dave Christensen, the, OC, the old uh, Missouri offense coordinator who was at Wyoming, he didn't really fit. It was not a great staff fit. This is the third O-line coach in three years, but... If everything I've heard is that that Turner has been a terrific fit there, and if they can get better and they can run the ball, and as someone you know, we talked about this. I think I asked him that was, you know, it'll help him in practice in terms of trying to deal with stopping the run because your team is more physical because that's what your identity is on offense and that's what you brought in as an offensive line coach. So that that could pay dividends. I think they're going to be a top top fifteen team this year. Wow. He made a comment in there. You know, I kind of I kind of think that is definitely possible, but he made a comment where he said, you know, we have to get better at two things. Stopping the run. Running the ball and stopping the run. And I'm like, well, those are kind of the two most important things but in football. The, but those are the Jim Turner-related things. I mean, look, UCLA, uh, which had huge issues last year at stopping the run because they were all beaten up, but that's one of the things UCLA, who's their first, first game, is trying to address because they changed – you know, more heavy personnel. Now Kennedy Polamalu is the guy instead of Noel Mazzoni. But I think they, they feel like that adds to the identity. you got to be more physical at practice because that shows up on Saturdays. And it would be interesting to see how this stuff plays out. Uh, Tennessee was here today. Tennessee 
facing the highest expectations they've had in almost a decade. They are the overwhelming favorite to win the SEC East. Bush Jones went up there for his half hour, and it is, if you were to go to the transcript, you cannot cram more football cliches into a sentence. But you're a huge Butch Jones fan. You're all about Butch I Jones. I am a Butch Jones believer. I think he is very smart. I think when he gets in front of the podium, you will see the cliches away from that. I don't think he's that way, but I think he's very calculated, and I think he's very measured. He, One of the things, when you said that, you know, I think we talked about this a couple of days ago, or maybe it was today. Um, I think... I, I really have a lot of uh, appreciation for the coaches who are constantly thinking about how do they get better at what they do. And, you know, Buzz Williams, a basketball coach, we had him on here a year ago, yeah, I'm a big fan of, is another one of these lawyers. Like, they're thinking outside their sport, you know, and you know it in, in what Jones is always trying to, to talk to coaches from other places to try to figure out ways to get better. Now, having said all that, I think the biggest reason they should have for optimism is the leaders in the locker room now are better. Those three guys they brought today, and we know about Josh Dobbs. He's like super smart academic guy, their quarterback. The other two guys, I mean, uh, you know, Bob Shoup, who's the new defense coordinator, who I thought was a really good hire, he loves Cam Sutton. You know, says he does everything right, and those kinds of guys. Between Sutton, Reeves Maven, and Derek Barnett, the defense lineman who, they, who was not here, uh, I think that's what they haven't had in a long time, you know. So between that and the two running backs who are studs, they should win the SEC. SECs. I think they're a ten-win team. I don't think they're quite as good as Alabama or LSU. But remember, they almost beat Alabama last year in Tuscaloosa. If they don't win the SEC East, something went really wrong because when you look at the rest of the field, from I mean, first of all, yes, they're that team is is talented across the board. I'm. Josh Dobbs to me gets a little too much hype. You know, he's a, he's a good quarterback. I don't he's a, think he's, he's a he's a really good story. I think yeah, he's a good why. story. I don't. I, at no point have I you know watched him play and said you know he's a, an elite quarterback. But um, but I do think you know those running backs are great. The defense should be really good. I mean that bowl game they couldn't have been more dominant against a, a Northwestern team that had won that ten hurt, games. Didn't it? That hurt. Doesn't bother me. Oh, the uh, but no, so Florida and Georgia have also come through here so far. Georgia, you know, Kirby Smart doesn't know if either of his top two running backs are going to be healthy for Week One. Um, he might be starting a true freshman quarterback. I expect Georgia to take a step back, even though I do in the end think it was necessary to make a change that they had kind of stagnated under Mark Richt. They may well go seven and five this year. They may take a step back. Florida. I like a lot. There's a lot to like about Florida. Uh, Jim McElwain's You like Jim McElwain's, Jim McElwain's vibe, don't you? Yeah, I think he's got that swagger. It's probably almost a little Spurrier-esque, don't you think? It's very... Uh, I don't think it's Spurrier-esque. I don't know who it is. I mean, he's kind of, you know, like... I'm trying to think who he reminds me of. Because the socks, no shoes. Spurrier... I'm not saying Spurrier felt like he was talking down to you. But McElwain's not. He's. I'm trying to think of what football coach he reminds me of. I mean, the, at the end of the day, he's not. Even though he has spent quite a bit of time in the SEC, he's more of like a Western. He's a Pac-12. Guy. Yeah, he's got. It's weird. He's got a little bit of leech in him. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, he's got a more focused leech, but that's not saying a lot. But I think he's, you know, there's a little of that. I think he's got a little bit of rich rod in him because you can tell he's trying to do a little bit of stick stand up. He knows he can be funny, um, but you know, I, I think the team. 
that, you know, he comes in after Will Muschamp, and you got not only, well, you know, yeah, they were saving guys, but one's defense, one's offense. But I think their personalities, at least as they show outwardly, are very, very different. That's not a knock on Will Muschamp. That's just, I think the tone is right there. Um, that doesn't mean that they're going to be a top 10 team, but they do have really good players on defense. I mean, the guys they brought here are good players. It's hard to believe that prior to him being the D.C. at Alabama under Saban. O.C. I'm sorry, the O.C. <laughs> yeah. Uh, most of his career, Eastern Washington, Montana State, uh, Louisville, Fresno State, you know, he was kind of on the, uh, the football outpost and before being thrown into, you know, the right. – Preeminent program and now being the head coach of a, a, a you know one of the big glamour programs. Um, so, but it's, but Tennessee, I mean Tennessee hasn't beaten Florida in a decade. There's a little bit of trash talk going on there. I would think if you went position by position, Tennessee would have the edge. What two thirds of the positions on the field? You know, I'm, I'm I don't know if I would give Tennessee. Florida's the got the, the best, best cornerback. Florida's yeah, got. I don't even, you know what? I wouldn't even say it. Cam Sutton is is is, is can, could be an All American candidate. So, I think Jalen Tabor is definitely an All-American candidate. Yeah, I mean, but I, I don't think the gap there is different. I don't think, you know, Flor- Florida's really good at linebacker. Florida has a better, I think Florida has a better defensive tackle. Tennessee may have as good a defensive line. The area where I think Tennessee is, is significantly better is they have two stud running backs. I don't think Florida has that right now. They have more of a proven quarterback. I mean, say what you want about Josh Dobbs. He's played against some good teams yeah. and, 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 and done and Florida's, the ball. Yeah. Florida's stud receiver is in limbo right now. We don't know if yeah. Antonio Callaway will be there or not. So, Tennessee, all is a long way of saying Tennessee should win that division. If they don't win that division, something went terribly wrong. And we had an interesting conversation, though, yesterday about if you just, and I don't know if this will hold true, but let's just say, Tennessee, Florida, and Georgia finish in the top three. Would it surprise you if Vanderbilt's fourth? No, it wouldn't because the talent they have uh, in, in the – especially at linebacker, they have athletes on the, all over the field on defense. Ralph Webb's a pretty good running back. I know they like their quarterback, um, Kyle Shermer. It's just – when I look at it, I think Kentucky could be there with them, and that means – I don't have a whole lot of faith in Kentucky. They haven't gotten it done yet. Uh, they're going to suddenly have a breakthrough here in year four of the Mark Stoops era. I don't know, but I th- I think they could be contending for a a six win season. I think well, right I hope now, so. They've <laughs> they've had four years to do it. The gap between Missouri has has the best personnel on the defensive line. I mean, I think they could play with anybody there. It's just I don't think they have the firepower on offense to be much more than a six-win team. I think South Carolina might actually be the worst of the yeah, four teams. Yeah, and, and so that's why I'm saying it would not surprise. I mean, Vandy, I think, will be excellent on defense. If they can just get a little bit of consistent quarterback play, you know, I think they could finish ahead of Missouri, South Carolina, and Kentucky in some order. Uh, maybe Kentucky, shoot, maybe Kentucky rises up and goes 8-4. and four. I don't know. But I'll say this. I, I went to Lexington this, this spring. Kentucky's got some guys that look like they you would think they would play at, at – Top ten programs. Their cornerbacks look like look like they should be at you know like could be NFL players two years from now. Drew Barker looked very good. The quarterback. They, I mean, they're they're missing in some other areas. There's not like their defensive line was probably better when Stoops first got there because they had a couple of really big time athletes on the end. But there are some pieces there. That's all I'm saying. I think that they are a team that should win. Should be challenging for six wins. Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans proudly supports the Audible. 
Rocket Mortgage brings the mortgage approval process into the 21st century. Fast, powerful, and completely online, Rocket Mortgage has taken all of the complicated, time-consuming parts of applying for a mortgage out of the equation. Hate searching through stacks of old files and paperwork? With Rocket Mortgage, you can easily share your bank statements and pay stubs at the touch of a button, helping you get approved in minutes for a custom mortgage solution that's been tailored to your unique financial situation. Even better, with Rocket Mortgage, you can do all of this on your phone or tablet. It's a quick online process that you can manage from the convenience of your couch. So if you're looking to refinance your mortgage or buy a home, check out Rocket Mortgage today at quickenloans.com backslash audible. Anything else SEC-related before we move on to the other news of the day? I don't know if you did this on purpose. You're kind of leading this discussion right now. But we've ended up talking a lot more about Kentucky and Vandy than we have about Alabama. Is that because we're worried that we're going to talk about Alabama and then they're going to, Nick Saban's going to say, you know, something? Um, well, it's, it's just worked out that way. No, I, it, I've been focused on the teams that we've already heard from. And it just so happens that we haven't heard from most of the West. We haven't heard from Alabama, LSU, Arkansas. We did hear from... Auburn. We should mention Gus Malzahn. You, uh, you wrote that you think he is going to save his job. Well, first of all, I wrote that he's definitely on the hot seat, which some Auburn fans took exception to. Not that he's on the hot seat, but my characterization, as we said on the podcast, that Auburn is a place that runs off its coaches. And, uh, you know, they'll throw out stats. Because Pat Dye was there for a long time. So if you go back far enough, you can say, oh, we've only had you know, five coaches in 50 years or something like that. Since then, not so much. But, uh, no, I think he's on the hot seat, but it was one bad year. You know, over the course of Gus Malzahn's career, his offenses are always good. I, for various reasons, things went south last year. Uh, I think that they'll, they'll get turned back around this year, but, you know, it'll all come down to the quarterback position. And I just don't have any faith in Jeremy Johnson or Sean White after last year. What about so that's putting a lot of expectations on John Franklin, a guy who we haven't seen yet. Yeah, who is not a big physical guy. Can he hold up in the SEC? It's well, not like he if he's if he's kind of like I don't know if you've seen Greg Ward from Houston in person. Greg Ward's not a big thick dude. I mean he's a terrific athlete, but I don't know if Greg Ward could hold up on an SEC schedule week in and week out. I kind of feel like that's probably what James Franklin's frame, James Franklin, uh, John Franklin the third. Sorry. Did you consider Nick Marshall a big physical guy? He's a thicker guy. He's yeah. just not tall. Yeah. I mean, he looks it like say, it seems like that's where they're going with this. That going back, you know, if you think about that 2013 offense that was so unstoppable by the end of the year, it was like they're running the old Nebraska triple option. I didn't know whether to take Marshall or Mason and Franklin with his speed. It seems like. That's what they're going to try to get back to. Yeah, they. I was at the SEC title game where they just torched Missouri's defense, and it was like they were playing at a different speed. They were running with so much confidence, and and it's amazing how much things changed a year, like a year later. You know, about halfway through the next year, it's been kind of a downward spiral ever since. They haven't, you know, as much as we talk about the quarterback, they also haven't had a Trey Mason back there or anything close to that. Okay, so I know we talked about this on our foray into Facebook Live yesterday uh, about what he needs to do to get off the hot seat. I said if they go 7-5, and five, I think he's still in trouble. You said you agree. You think he's getting fired if he's 7-5. and five. I mean, it kind of depends on who the five are. And if if one they get of blown out by Alabama at the end... Um, I don't, you know, Jay Jacobs, the AD, came out this summer and said he's going to be our coach for a long, long time. But they have to say yeah. that. Yeah, to me, and to me, it's if they beat Alabama, great, you know, for them. 
But I don't think if he goes seven and five and they lose by Alabama, even by by you know twelve points, which isn't like getting blown out of the building, I don't think it matters what the other seven are. I think it's only it's only Alabama. Now they can lose to Alabama and go nine and three, and I think he's in probably good shape. But it's the if you're seven and five and you lost to Alabama, I don't care. You know they could be they could even be Clemson in the opener. It's a home game. I think they have five home home games in a row. I don't know if that would be enough because then it looks like he's, you beat Clemson and then all of a sudden you ended up going basically six and five the last eleven. Look, the SEC West is the Hunger Games of coaching. <laughs> not we know we know going in somebody's not making it out of there alive this year. I don't know if it'll be Malzahn. I don't know if it'll be someone. What happens to Brett Bielema if he takes Les a step Miles? back? Less mile. Like basically everybody but Saban, Mullen, and Freeze are. Not safe. Well, yeah. And 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 these are guys who have all accomplished something. You know, Brett Bielema was a very successful coach yeah. at Wisconsin, and there is a lot of optimism in Arkansas. But it's not like they've had that ten win season yet. Um, Malzahn's not that far removed from the national title game. Someone's not that far removed from eleven and two, which A and M hadn't done in a long, long 50 time. Fifty years, yeah. The first time in the top five finish. So, and who knows if if Mississippi State goes four and eight. Um, they'll say, oh, it was all Dak Prescott. Mullen's got to go. So it's very fickle in that division. Um, Let me shift gears for you for a second. So one of the stories that kind of took over early Tuesday was not an SEC story. Uh, It was came out of Penn State. It was more Sandusky-Paterno stuff. Uh, You know, I felt like it was kind of a drive-by, and we all had to, in national media, reacted a lot to it for a couple of hours the part of the reason what was different about this was it was the release of Mike McQuarrie's deposition from a, from 2015, and he I don't know if implicated is the right word, but he had some allegations that Greg Schiano uh, had knowledge of this as well as as Tom Bradley. Now Tom Bradley, who's now the UCLA defensive coordinator, he was at Penn State for basically you know 35 years. I think there's a lot of people who feel like well if any if there's something that had gone on there. People probably feel like Tom Bradley had to know something, and that's putting it like, you know, mildly. Craig Schiano, who had been, you know, he went to Bucknell, but he had been an assistant and a staffer under Joe Paterno, had been so far removed from Penn State. Uh, he had been a Rutgers head coach for about a decade. Then he was the head coach of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Now he's back in college football as the as a defense coordinator at Ohio State. For this to kind of resurface, you know. On him, I thought was a, a curveball. Yeah, the, when the story first broke early Tuesday, you know the immediate headline that the New York Times and everybody jumped on was the details uh, that had we we had heard about it a while back, but it's the first time the specific details came back out of an accuser saying that he told Joe Paterno he'd been molested by Sandusky in 1976, and he did nothing about it. And I don't know why, in my mind. I'm not downplaying that. If that's true, that's awful. But I feel like it was so long ago, nobody will ever know if that happened. There's just, Paterno is dead. Like, we'll whoever, never know. Whoever believes that Sandusky did those things probably believes it, and there's more you know, more weight to it. And whoever doesn't believe it is not going to be swayed by this. The, the one thing I, I wondered about this is, you know, I, Jerry Sandusky is at an age where you wouldn't think this kind of behavior that he is in prison for would have started that late in life. Yeah, and so at the time of his conviction, I believe the earliest one was 1998. Which is how which old was, was Jerry always, Sandusky then? Yeah, in his 
fifties. Like it, it, it was always, you always kind of figured there was there was more in the past, but you know, without specifics, what could you do? But to me, the the, the bombshell because of what we cover and, and who we cover, this Mike McQuarrie uh, testimony that comes out and implicates two current defensive coordinators at high profile programs. Now again, it's whose version of events do you believe? Both of those coaches have come out immediately today and refuted knowing anything uh, about the incidents, but. No, I would say this. Which I think, look, you know, we had said, because at first they had not commented it. If they didn't, I think to some people that is an, that is, feels like an admission of guilt. The, the, basically the denial as both of them were, uh, you know, well, now, does, that, does that mean Mike, Mike McQuarrie is guilty of perjury? Um, I mean, lawyers, it, 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 lawyers, I'm sure, help. Crafty statements. Yeah. So. so, well, that's why I was going to get to the, to one of the statements in a second because I think you'll find it interesting. Just for people who didn't read the stuff, the stories. So McQuarrie, who was basically the whistleblower the first time. I mean, he was really the only person in this whole thing at any point that actually raised a concern to somebody higher than him. Uh, that being Joe Paterno, and that 2001 incident ended up being basically Joe Paterno's downfall. So he gets called in to this. Now we're into the civil process. This is a case involving, it's really kind of uh, hard to describe, right? It's the insurance company. Penn State's insurance company feels it shouldn't be held responsible for these tens of millions of dollars in settlements that are going to pay to victims. And their argument is because Penn State leaders had many, there were many times since the 70s that Penn State leaders were told about this and didn't do anything about it. So we should be off the hook. So they bring in Mike McQuarrie, and it's not that long ago. The deposition's from 2015. Um, we have no reason to believe he would go in there and make up stuff. He says they ask him first. They ask him basically to recount. Well, everything. if he if he would have made up stuff, you know, it's like the thing I wondered about is what kind of. I mean, did he have? Does if he did, would he have that bad of a relationship with Greg Schiano that you know? He would kind of just throw him, and I would say throw him under the bus for no reason. Yeah, I mean, he he's under no obligation to bring up Greg Schiano. I mean, Tom Bradley is where it starts with, because in the deposition he mentions, you know, they were room. He said he said they were roommates at one point, mm-hmm. or they lived together, or they were very close. Him and, and Bradley, and basically he says that at some point in the years after two thousand one, he told Tom Bradley about what he'd seen, and Tom Bradley said he said he was not shocked. He said he'd heard. Something to that effect in the past. And according to McQuarrie, now this is third hand, according to McQuarrie, Bradley told him that Greg Schiano, when he was an assistant in the early 90s, came in, what was the phrase, white as a ghost? Yeah. Because he had just seen Sandusky with a boy in the shower. I mean, if that's true, that's a that's a bombshell. That is a, since a guy who was going on to be an NFL head coach... Rutgers head coach witnessed this in the early 90s and nothing happened. Of course, you you know, Shiano has completely denied it. You know what? You'll never know one way or the other. But here's what I want to bring up. Tom Bradley, you mentioned carefully crafted statements. This is a statement from his lawyer. I want to read it to you. Tell me if anything stands out. At no time did Tom Bradley ever witness any inappropriate behavior, nor did he have any knowledge of alleged instances in the 80s and 90s. He has consistently testified as such. Any assertions to the contrary are false. When he became aware of the 2001 incident, it had already been reported to the university administration years earlier. What do you make of that last line? What's the years earlier? Like, when was it reported to the administration? Do we know that? I believe he's referring to 
McQuarrie, referring to Paterno, referring to the administration in 2001. Well, I, I take this to mean that the, the events that, um, that McQuarrie's describing, where somewhere in the years after that, he said it was like maybe 05, 06, he tells Bradley the story about that. I think he's not denying that, but he's saying, well, but, you know, there's nothing to be held responsible for here because that had already been reported. You know, the the part, as we're talking about it, um, the Shiano part, I, just this is my own personal opinion. I could be, you know, way off base on this. I kind of find it hard to believe that Greg Shiano would have witnessed that and turned white as a ghost and and just acted like he didn't see it. I just... That doesn't seem like... Because I've known Greg Schiano for like 15 years, and I'm not saying Greg Schiano is the greatest this or the greatest that. It just doesn't quite match up with who I think, you know, what I think his personality is. I also think that, again, this wasn't Greg Schiano telling this to Mike McQuarrie. This was like almost a game of telephone at that point. Right. And it's being recounted 20-something years later, so a lot can be lost in there. I don't know that you're ever really going to know that's the thing. That. Now, I was going to ask you this, and I don't know if, if there's any good answers to this. After the denials on both sides, is this, this isn't going to go anywhere, right? Probably not. There's no, you know, Penn State fans will come and say, where's the evidence? Well, what? I don't know what kind of evidence could possibly materialize in a case like this. It's always going to be somebody's testimony against somebody else's testimony. So I don't think anything tangible comes of this. I mean, there were, there, we should also say there were people who have come out and said, okay, the timeline on some of these allegations didn't match up with assistant coaches, like one coach. But not those. There not were those, ones from those the other ones. From the, no, it was from 80. For, I want to say it's from 88 to 91. I think Jay Paterno was somebody who has Well, the prosecutors in the case came out and, and said those are not, like, not credible. So they're mentioned in the and, case, and but in they're fair, not credible. And in fairness to Penn State, I remember when there was the latest Sarah Ganim story from, like, whatever it was, two months ago. That there was some of the math got changed of like the years were kind of off. Um, this is back in the case in the seventies. I don't think we're ever going to know who knew what when. I think that it can be safely assumed that it would never seem believable that Sandusky could be hanging around the football complex all those years after he retired. That he could be bringing children in from his charity all the time, and no, and we knew of at least a couple incidents that were reported. And that nobody in the rest of the bill. I mean, these guys spend did, did during the season. It, these yeah. guys spend their whole lives, and they sleep over sometimes in the football complex. You're not telling me that in a meeting room with some downtime, they're not going. You know, you know something, anything odd about <laughs> that guy that keeps coming in. I'm sorry to make light of it. But it's an awful story, but so all of this is a way of saying that I think that it, it's kind of what. The NCAA got to me. While I disagree with their, you know, handling of it, the sentiment that they expressed was true. This was a culture where everybody knew a little something probably, but nobody – it was like a game of hot potato because nobody wanted to cross Joe Paterno or and or, you know, be the reason why there would be a bombshell uh, explosive scandal at this proud football school. So everybody kind of – it was just – one of those things where it probably became like a the family secret that nobody talks about, you know? Five years from now, what are the odds that there's going to be some 30 for 30-ish documentary where Mike McQuarrie talks and says what he... 
I mean, will, will you think there will ever be something where there will be def- something more definitive? I mean, Jerry Sandusky's in prison. He's not coming out. Mike McQuarrie is an interesting and almost tragic story because he's the only the only people, you know, Graham Spanier and Tim Curley and these guys, like, I have no sympathy for them. You know, you saw the email exchanges. Right. They had extremely important information and they punted on it. Mike McQuarrie is the only one in all of this who saw something, you know, what's the... uh, See something, say something. something. something, Which he did. Now, some people have said, oh, he should have jumped in there in the middle of it and broken it up. He should... No, unless... Do you think there's... Have you heard any justifiable reason why Mike McQuarrie would make this stuff up? No. I don't know if he's got some axe to grind after the fact. I mean, because right now, basically... Mike McQuarrie would seem to be persona the most credible. non grata. Though. He's persona non grata. He seems like the most credible, but he also seems like he has been basically, you know, he, he was a quarterback, he was a coach there, he's a state college native, and he's basically been exiled from that Penn State family for, for it, what basically for being a snitch, I if guess. If you could ask him three questions, what would you ask him? That's a very deep question. Sitting on a would he be would, and would he be obligated to to answer candidly? Yeah, I mean theoretically. How many people on the Penn State staff knew that Jerry Sandusky had abused boys before the whole thing came out in 2011? That would be one of my questions. Um, you know how he has said like he went and he talked to Paterno, but he was skittish about it, and like what exactly did you say? Like, what terminology did you use to describe right. that? Because that, there seems like it's too vague. Now, look, it's whatever it is. It's like 15 years ago now? Yeah. That's a long time. And actually, this is the question that would move to number one on my list because it's always been a bit of a puzzler. Having seen what you saw, and by the way, I don't think any of us can, can say what it would be like to what be in that moment. What it would be like moment, to be yeah. in that moment. It's a, it's a trauma you're, you're, you're experiencing. Um, having seen that... How on earth did you deal with the fact that Sandusky kept showing up at the building to work out for years after the like? How could you, you know, how could you even look him in the eye? Like, what was that? How how awful was that? Knowing what you had seen. I mean, I think that's a that's a hard question. That would be a hard question, I would imagine, to answer because it's such a, you know, it's almost it's even worse than this, but it's like, you know, asking somebody. You know, why did you drive drunk the night you killed that person or something? Right. Like, you know, like, to put them in a place of where you have to be so remorseful and know you did the wrong thing, but in the moment, you just didn't. A lot of us do things on a much smaller scale. To be clear, I don't think McQuarrie did the wrong thing, do you? I think he was seeing something that was so unfathomable. That, like, what am I seeing right now? That, that was so horrifying, like... I think it's very easy from Which a, are you more fascinated? from the benefit of hindsight to say, oh, he should have, you know, jumped in there and broken that up. You know, I, I don't know how I would have reacted in that situation. Or, you know, none of us really do. Are you more fascinated by this story now than you were three years earlier? I think that for the longest time it was such a dark story that it was hard to fascinated. No, it was I mean, just it's still, so it's sad. It's sad because so they're you know for people who say, you know, I don't want to say these, the term Joe bots, but for people who who are, are on that side of it, um, do they not think there are victims here? I mean, I don't. 
I know? think that's why today's news interested me more probably than any in this story in a while because because it wasn't about rehashing Joe Paterno. Like, On the, there's the headline more, was. The, the headline, the headline was. was, but but that's because the people reporting on it probably maybe they didn't know who uh, Greg Shiano was. I don't know, but... This stood out to me because it was a whole new dimension to it. It was no longer about Joe Pa, you know, was it like a few days ago that 500 alumni? I thought it was like, like three weeks three ago. Days, yeah. 500 alumni signed a letter to get the statue back. Like, I'm so done with that. I don't want to hear anything about statues, you know? That is not appropriate. This thing is still, there are still unresolved issues related to this. I just don't want to deal with anything about Joe Paterno. This is a fascinating new wrinkle. Unfortunately, like you said, I think it's also a dead end. I don't think anything comes of it other than, and you mentioned this on our video, what do you think James Franklin's thinking today? Again? Really? Yeah. Again? I mean... More of this? I, but that, I hate to say it, but whether he realized the full of it, because James Franklin's a Pennsylvania native, he kind of signed on for that. Now, he didn't sign on for... You know, five years later. Five years later, and a new AD and a president who, you know, I think both of them make some tone-deaf statements. Um, but it's it's still pretty messy. Well, it's, it's, it's one of the ugliest, if not the ugliest, scandal in college sports history. And, and it's just so personal to so many people there. I mean, this, the whole town revolved around Joe Paterno for so long. So many people had a relationship with him. This is their this identity. Is so, a lot of people's identity is yeah. tied to Penn State in a way that I don't know. Most I don't know a lot of other people who go to college and come out of there feeling the same like allegiance to, you know, one not allegiance to one man, but just like kind of his identity was such a big part of their identity. I don't want. I hate to make generalizations and lump like a whole. Okay, I mean, there's plenty of you know so reasonable not, Penn State fans, and so and I have a lot of respect for a lot of people that came through that program, but I will say that. I covered a game there against Ohio State. It was Halloween weekend in 2007. And, you know, oftentimes you get in, we go to these games, we all get together the night before the game. For whatever reason, I didn't know anybody else that was in that night. So I just kind of went around the town on my own. Now, it was a little, like, the drunkenness was even worse than usual because it was Halloween. But, like, everywhere you went, the We Are chant and the people with Joe Pa glasses and it was I've never seen you know you say like oh they're so passionate about college football in the south I've never seen a place I mean I remember saying to somebody after I drove out of there I go it's like a cult the whole city the whole place revolves around this coach and you know sadly that turned out to be true in a really awful way uh, I I don't know when the final chapter on this story will finally close I don't know how it will be but now this latest news ensures that it's not going to go away anytime soon and it, you know, I think that James Franklin will try hard. Penn State fans will try hard to continue to focus on the current team, the current players. You know, Barkley, those guys, they have nothing to do with it. Right. But guess what? We're going to be at Big Ten Media Days in two weeks. Guess what they're going to be answering questions about? Hopefully not satellite camps. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that's one major upset. Two days full of SEC Media Days. There has not been one single satellite camp question. Um, we got to wrap this up, unfortunately. Uh, Bruce, you'll be at Pac-12 Media Days later this week. Uh, I unfortunately cannot join you, though for a good reason. I'm going to my wife's grandfather's 100th birthday party. That is impressive. Yes. It's uh, some, some amazing stories to be told. So only one podcast this week. But then next week, wait, you're going to Big 12? I'm going to Big 12 and Big 10. Big 10 the following week. Then I'm going to Big 10. Let's try to do Big two 12. next week, and at that point you will have done Pac-12. 
um, and the great big Hollywood glitz production that it is, and, uh, and and we'll have more to say at that time. If you enjoy the Audible, as always, subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. We'll see you next time. Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans proudly supports the Audible. Rocket Mortgage brings the mortgage approval process into the 21st century. Fast, powerful, and completely online, Rocket Mortgage has taken all of the complicated, time-consuming parts of applying for a mortgage out of the equation. Hate searching through stacks of old files and paperwork? With Rocket Mortgage, you can easily share your bank statements and pay stubs at the touch of a button helping you get approved in minutes for a custom mortgage solution that's been tailored to your unique financial situation. Even better, with Rocket Mortgage, you can do all of this on your phone or tablet. It's a quick online process that you can manage from the convenience of your couch. So if you're looking to refinance your mortgage or buy a home, check out Rocket Mortgage today at quickenloans.com backslash audible.